All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who believes on me, there is no other way under heaven given among men except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance on our study this morning. Our Father, we're thankful for your goodness to us. We're thankful for our Savior, who was willing to go to the cross to bear an unimaginable pain, not physically but spiritually, in the separation that occurred between you and he. Father, we pray for us as we study and reflect upon these trials leading up to his condemnation and his crucifixion that as we study these, we may come to focus even more upon what it means to respond to injustice and and personal injustice and what it means in the scripture to understand that the just died for the unjust. We pray that we might have a greater appreciation for all that our Lord and Savior did for us, both before and during the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26. We will be here and back again. And we will also spend a little time in John chapter 18. What we are beginning to examine today and for the next few weeks are the trials and denials of Jesus. He will go through six trials, and then during this same time, there are the denials of Peter. And so they are interwoven, and so we will be looking at at them uh, this morning. As a backdrop for this, because the first trial is described only in the Gospel of John, we must understand the backdrop for that trial within the structure and argument of John. John presents Jesus as the, as the light of the world, the light who came into the world to shine in darkness. And if you remember, I emphasized that a little bit as we went through what happened at the Garden of Gethsemane. It's nighttime. It is pitch black. You have the 600-plus coming, maybe 800 or 1,000 people in the crowd coming uh, to arrest Jesus, the text emphasizes they had torches and lamps with them as they come to arrest the light of the world. And so there's this interplay there that's very subtle in the text between light and darkness. But when we get to John, we're going to see something else that's brought out in the text as we see Jesus, the light of the world, coming into the darkness, the darkness of the religion the religious leaders and their trials and the darkness of the Roman leaders and their trials and what they will do for him. So that's what we see here is his light 
penetrating the darkness, exposing the darkness, and condemning the darkness. So we look at the synoptic gospels and the account in John. One of the things that we see is that there's a, seems to be a lot of difference between these accounts. And that is because each writer is focusing on some different aspects of those trials. No author represents all of them. There are actually six trials that take place. Now, among scholars, there's debate as to whether or not these are six full-blown trials. Some want to say, well, they're hearings. Others want to say that there's really uh, two trials. There's the religious trial and there's the criminal trial, but nevertheless, they divide those into six portions, three each. I like to use the term trial. I recognize there's a difference between our system of jurisprudence and what we think of as a trial and what other cultures think of as a trial. So don't confuse them. These are, I think, it is adequate to say they are six distinct trials. And one of the things that is brought out by many students of both Jewish history as well as what it takes place in these trials and also a knowledge of, of, the, of legal issues at the time in Rome and in Israel is that these trials violate the laws of, of, of the Romans and they profoundly violate the laws of the Jews. These six trials, the first three are basically the religious trials. The first trial is mentioned in, and described in John eighteen twelve through 14, and that is the trial before Annas, who is no longer the active legal high priest, but he is the power behind uh, the high priest throughout all this time because he's either, as in the case with Caiaphas, the father-in-law, or he is the father of subsequent high priests. Also, then he will be sent from Annas to Caiaphas, which is not a long distance, because they both lived in the same building, and one was, uh, it was the house of the high priest. One lived in one wing, one lived in the other, so it's just going from one side of the house to the other. And then there was a third trial before the, the Sanhedrin. These are described in the verses on the board. The trial in An by Annas is John eighteen twelve to 14, before Caiaphas, Matthew twenty six fifty seven to 68, before the Sanhedrin, it's described in Matthew 27, uh, 1 to 2. Then they go from the Jewish trials, the religious trials, to the criminal trials, the trials before the Roman authorities. There is a trial before Pilate described in John eighteen twenty-eight to 38, and then he wa doesn't want to have anything to do with it. This needs to be settled by, uh, by Herod. Herod um, so he sends... Jesus to Herod in Luke 23, 6 through 12. And then Herod says, no, he's got to go back to Pilate. And so sends him back to, back to Pilate. That's described in John 18, 39 to 19, 6. And so as we go through this, I don't want to just focus on what Matthew says. I want to look at the whole scope of what takes place here and, and what transpires. So there are these six different trials that are that take place. Now remember, Jesus was arrested in the Garden 
of Gethsemane by a mixed multitude. There were Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders. There were Pharisees and Sadducees. There were Roman soldiers. There were um, Roman officers that were there, all of them coming together, Jew and Gentile, conspiring against the Son of God. And that crowd, that mixed multitude, represents the world, represents that all of us, Jew and Gentile, are responsible for the death of Jesus. There has been this horrible canard down through the centuries that the Jews were Christ killers. And especially in the Middle Ages, this flourished into the horrible, poisonous flower of anti-Semitism. And that shaped much of the relationship between uh, Jews and Gentiles up until really uh, the 19th century. And then you really had the rise or the flourishing of what became known as British Restorationism. Uh, there were not just Brits, but there were many in Europe who believed that, that the Jews were still God's chosen people, even though they had rejected Jesus as Messiah and that God still had a future plan for their, their lives. And they played a critical role along with Jews. Most of the time, neither side knew what the other was doing in eventually bringing the Jewish people back to their, uh, to their national homeland. But this poisonous fruit of, of anti-Semitism has shaped, negatively shaped so much of the relationship between Christians and, and Jews so that there is deep, deep suspicion in the Jewish community toward Christians. Often they do not understand Christians and frankly not a whole lot better than most Christians understand Judaism. But a lot of that goes back to this misidentification of who's responsible for the death of Jesus. It is Jew and Gentile that is responsible for his, for his death. So the first thing we need to understand as we look at these passages is that there are these six trials. The second thing we need to observe is that this is a tremendously dramatic scenario. It is profound. It is intense. The emotions are running high. There is uh, a little bit of uh, anxiety, perhaps panic, on the part of the Jewish leaders, because remember, they didn't want Jesus arrested until after the feast days when the multitudes would not get upset, and they wanted to do it somewhat quietly. And all of a sudden, because uh, Jesus revealed to Judas that he knew what he was up to and what the plot was, that Judas went to the uh, chief priest and says, it's either now or maybe he'll escape again. And so at the last minute, they had to throw everything together. And that's reflected a little bit in these trials. It's just sort of a, this this impromptu last minute, we got to do it now or never. And as a result of that, there were numerous illegalities uh, that took place that night, the early dawn, and the next day. What we need to also understand as we look at this is that each one of these gospel writers has a different perspective based on the reason they are writing their gospel. Matthew, we know, as we have studied, is presenting Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of Man who is coming to offer his kingdom to Israel. The kingdom is rejected and postponed, and now the king 
the Son of Man, a very Jewish messianic title, has been rejected by the Jews as Messiah, and he will now be crucified. But in that crucifixion, we, he fulfills the suffering servant prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53 to die for the sins of his people, to provide righteousness for them. That is in Matthew. In John, which we'll be looking at in the first trial as well as in the last trial, or the fourth trial and the sixth trial, we see Jesus presented as the Son of God in all of his, and, and to display and reveal the glory of the Son of God as the incarnate Son of God. A couple of verses I want us to think through here as we set up the introduction. In John 1.14, which is part of the intro, the prologue to John, John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have the incarnation there, the eternal Logos who was God. In the beginning was the word, the Logos, and the word was with God. And the Logos, the word, was God. An indisputable statement of the full deity of Jesus Christ. And then the incarnation is are revealed in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, a lot of times when we think about the glory of God, we think back to the Old Testament. We think of that, that, that brilliant uh, pillar of fire that stood over the tabernacle that we often refer to as the Shekinah glory, the glory of the dwelling presence of God. We, we think of Moses going up on the mountain, and he is with God, and when he comes down, he has to put on a veil because his, his face just reflects this brilliant light that he has been exposed to while he has been in the presence of God. And so we think of the glory of God that is something that is that is heavenly, something from a different dimension, something that is profound, it's illuminating, it's, it's brilliant. But the glory that John talks about is an everyday glory, that when Jesus was on the earth, the glory he manifested wasn't that kind of glory. The glory that he manifested was the essence of God. And often in the scriptures, that term, the glory of God, is a way of talking about the essence of God. For example, in Romans 3.23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What glory of God means there is the essence of God. We have fallen short of his, of his standard. And so when we look at this and we beheld Jesus' glory, we're beholding his character. He is displaying for us the character of God in how he interacted uh, with human beings. It is that glory or essence of the Father that's emphasized. It, it's, uh, two qualities are emphasized here, grace and truth. And so we're told a few verses later in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared him or revealed him. The word in the Greek 
is a word you've heard the English counterpart to. It's the word exegao, where we get our word exegesis. It displays out the glory of God. But how did, does it do it? It does it in the everyday actions of Jesus Christ's life on the earth. In fact, in the next chapter, in John chapter 2, we have the first sign that's given in the Gospel of John. These signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And here we have the first sign, which is the turning of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And at the conclusion of that event, we don't see Jesus showing the effulgence of his divine glory in some brilliant flash of light there. In fact, nobody really knew who he was, and they were dumbfounded that this water got turned into the best wine they had ever had. And at the conclusion, John says, These, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. See, it's his grace towards those who were at that wedding feast in providing, supplying for them more wine after they had run out. And the disciples believed in him. Now, that's not saying that it, they, before this they were unbelievers and now they're believers. Because you see through John that this statement is made about the disciples again and again. It sort of reinforces what their original position was and their understanding of who he is as Messiah grows and grows uh, through, through the gospel. But then the, we also see a couple of other themes that are part of John's presentation of Jesus. This is a third thing that I want to emphasize in this introduction. We see this presentation of Jesus as the light that comes into the world of darkness. And John presents Jesus again and again as the light of the world. And in John 1, 9, he says, referring to Jesus, that that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So he is a light that illuminates every man coming into the world. But when he entered into the world, specifically the world of Israel at that time, he was rejected. He came to his own. The light came, and they rejected him, and they did not receive him. And this is very much a part of John's presentation of Jesus throughout his Gospel of John, that his own did not receive him. And when we come to the trials, he's emphasizing that his own, the leadership of his own, did not receive him. Annas is rejecting Caiaphas. We already know has rejected him. But Annas has rejected him, and the Sanhedrin will come together, and they will reject him. But we know that there were some who received him, and this is what John says in John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the authority to become children of God and to those who believe in his name. In the third chapter of John, as we come to our favorite verse, John 3.16, that God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John then follows that up by saying, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
See, the first advent wasn't the basis for the condemnation of the world because the next verse in verse 18 goes on to say that they're already condemned. They're born condemned. They've been condemned since Adam sinned. And in John 3.18, we read, He who believes in him is not condemned, for he, but he who does not believe in him has been condemned already. He was born condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, the only solution to condemnation is belief, trusting in Christ as the Messiah who died on the cross for our sins. And at the instant that we believe, it's not believe and be good, it's not believe and and improve your life, it's not believe and uh, impress everybody with your giving, it's not believe and serve God. Not that you shouldn't do all those things, but they have nothing to do with salvation. It is believe only in Jesus as your Savior. And that's what John says over 95 times in the Gospel of John. He just uses that verb, believe, believe, believe. It's never qualified. It doesn't say truly believe, genuinely believe, actually believe. It just believe. And that's it. And it never adds anything else to it. So the solution is to believe. So we're condemned because we come into the world condemned, not because Jesus came in the world to condemn us at the first advent, in that eternal state. But there is another sense in which there is a condemnation from Jesus. It is more in the sense of a conviction of sin and who we are. And that's what John brings out in the very next verse. He says, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil, the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders, the Sanhedrin, the uh, Sadducees, the Pharisees, for the most part, there were some who believed, but they were a minority. Everyone practices evil, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And see, this is what we see in these trials, both the Jewish trials and the Roman trials, is that Jesus, the light of the world, stands before these human authorities who are supposed to judge him. But in fact, it is their deeds that are being brought to light in his light, and are being exposed, and their condemnation is being revealed. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. He is guiltless. He is perfect. He is he is absolute righteousness. In fact, in John, um, excuse me, in First Peter three eighteen, as we have studied on Thursday night, he is called the just or the righteous one who dies in the place of the unjust or the unrighteous ones. So this is a theme that is being brought out by John, is that Jesus is standing there before these unjust judges, and even though they are judging him in one sense, his very presence is is a conviction to them, and there is a spiritual dimension to that that is being brought out by these various writers, but especially John. Now, a fourth thing that I want us to think about is in terms of the presentation in Matthew, another aspect of this dramatic presentation. 
If you're looking in Matthew 26, 57, we're told that in verse 57 that those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But if you look at the next verse, it says, but Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. So those two verses basically set the stage. Think about going to a play or maybe watching something on TV where you get a split screen so that you can see action that's contemporaneous, action going on in one place on this side and action taking place somewhere else on this side. And that's what Matthew introduces here. One verse focuses us on Jesus going to trial. The other verse focuses on Peter on his way to denial. And so that's that's the structure here. And so what I want to do, because I can't do both at the same time, I want to focus on at least the first two trials, and then we'll come back and talk through the issues related to Peter's, uh, Peter's denial. So on the one side, we're looking at Peter. He's outside the temple ground. He's disguised himself. And he's hoping against hope that he's going to gain some sight of his Lord. What are they doing with him? He's as curious as he can be, and he wants to make sure everything's okay, but he doesn't want anybody to know who he is, and he certainly doesn't want to get arrested and condemned as well. And on the other side, we're looking at our Lord. I want you to think about this. He is demonstrating great courage. He is silent. He is not cowed. He's not arrogant. He is standing straight, firm, clear conscience. He's not standing arrogantly, but he's not sta- showing some kind of servile humility either. He is, in fact, in absolute control of the situation. Even though he is under arrest, and he is in the presence of these men who are going to condemn him and take his life on the basis of trumped-up charges. He is completely in control. Now, when we look at the Matthew account, Matthew doesn't tell us about the first trial. Matthew just gives us an introduction in verse 57 to Jesus being taken away to Caiaphas. He totally skips his going to Annas. He's led away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders are assembled. The next verse, he tells us what happens with Peter, and we come back in verse 59, and he begins to tell what happens uh, in the trial with the chief priests, the elders, and all the council, which is the Sanhedrin. In verse 57, we're told, that the scribes and elders were assembled. That's the word sunago in the, in the Greek, which is the um, verb counterpart or cognate to the noun synagogue, where we get it just means an, an assembly. In the n- next verse, in verse 59, uses the word council. That is the word for Sanhedrin. That's a formal meeting, meeting of the Sanhedrin. And so what they are going to do is come together and seek a charge against him. 
and to bring this charge against him. And this ultimately will be provided by Jesus who makes his messianic claim in verse 64 where he says, after he is asked if he is the Christ, the Son of God, he says, it's as you said, he admits it. He says, nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, we'll look at this in, in a little more detail later, but, but he uses a title, Son of Man, which comes out of Daniel 7, which is clearly a title of deity. It's one of the favorite titles that G- Matthew uses for Jesus in his gospel, emphasizing that he is the messianic king who will come to establish his kingdom based on Daniel 7. But Jesus also then says he's the one who will be sitting at the right hand of the power. That's a a circumlocution for the name of God. That is a reference to Psalm 110, a messianic psalm. So he clearly affirms the statement of who he is and that at the future, he says, you will be see me coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, we'll come back to the second trial if we have time this morning. If not, I'll do it next time. We go to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. So turn with me there, and we will look at what tra- transpires in this first trial as the light of the world stands in the presence of the darkness of Annas and the high priesthood of Israel at that particular time. Now we're told in John eighteen twelve, following the arrest of Jesus, that the detachment uh, of troops is not uh, is added for clarification. The Greek word is the word that refers to a Roman cohort of troops, which, as I pointed out the last time, was probably about six hundred soldiers. And the captain that is mentioned there is the Greek word kiliarchos, which referred to a tribune or a commander of a thousand troops. So this is a, that just reinforces the fact that this is a large group of people. They have arrested Jesus. They have bound him, we're told here. And then they lead him away or they, it could be translated, they brought him to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, who is Annas? I I think it's really helpful for us to grasp the, the, the spiritual dynamics here, because Annas is almost the face of religious evil. You can think, and and he's worse than that. He's he's like a combination of the Ayatollah Khomeini and the Godfather in. you know, in the Godfather series, he is he is both. He is, he is a criminal of the worst order. He is, he's involved in all kinds of nefarious enterprises involving bribery and uh, and and embezzlement and intimidation, all these things. And and it's just and he's the head of this this clan that controls the religious enterprise of, of Israel at this time. It's the worst of the worst that's taking place here. And so um, according to the Mosaic Law, the high priest is is appointed for life, and he is appointed by Quirinius when he becomes the uh, 
a ruler in Syria, the procurator in Syria, in 86. And then he is deposed later by uh, his replacement, Valerius Gradius, in AD 15, because he had become too powerful. And so he is removed. And then they go through a period of a couple of years where three different high priests are appointed by Gratus, and they don't last more than a year. And there's one after the other, so it's very unstable. And then the fourth one that's appointed is Joseph Caiaphas, who is Annas's son-in-law. What's interesting is he continues to be high priest until 36. So he is there for approximately 18 or 19 years after such instability, and that shows something about Caiaphas, that he's able to work with the and ingratiate himself into those uh, Romans who are in power. In fact, he even outlasted uh, Pontius Pilate by a short time, by, by several months. So it gives us an, an insight into them. Uh, Annas is a real power broker. He's pretty old by this time. And he had five sons, each of whom were uh, high priests. And he had a grandson who would become the high priest and one son-in-law. So they just had a lock on this power base in the priesthood. They run an extremely corrupt, illegal operation. They controlled all the booze. Jesus comes in to cast out the money changers. Well, they're in tr- they're running that whole operation, and they're, they're making a 200% profit. It, it's just a scam where they're taking advantage of everybody who comes into the, um, into the temple to, to worship. So he's selling those, those concessions. Uh, Jesus, of course, really challenges Annas head-on each time he overturns the tables and drives the money changers out of the temple. That's a direct challenge to the family. That's a direct challenge to Annas. And so Annas has no love for Jesus. He hates Jesus. He wants to do away with Jesus. He's probably been trying to get uh, Caiaphas to hurry up and do something for some time. Uh, He's not looked on very favorably by later generations. Rabbis, uh, a hundred years later, uh, wrote, or a couple hundred years later, wrote in the Talmud, Woe to the house of Annas! Woe to the serpent's hiss! That's not a real positive view of Annas. They are high priests, their sons are keepers of the treasure, their sons-in-law are guardians of the temple, and their servants beat the people with staves. How's that for an epitaph on your monument? Well, Jesus is first brought to Annas in this, uh, in this trial, sort of an arraignment perhaps, and Annas is trying to find something to uh, cause or, or to cause him to be guilty of. Now, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, just a little bit about Caiaphas. He is, as I said, he's somebody who's able to really work with the Romans in authority. He's sort of the picture of the uh, uh, politician who's able to work both sides of the table. And he's like some of our politicians who would be able to work their policy by poll and no matter what happens, they're in favor of it. And he's able to keep himself in power for a very long time. Now, what's also interesting is that if you look at what goes on, you've got Caiaphas, and then Caiaphas succeeded by another of Annas' sons, and then another of Annas' sons up through the 40s. 
so that every major martyr in the early church is put to death under the authority of an Annas descendant family member. They hated Christianity. In fact, I think that since they had such a lock on things, that if you look at what's going on in the 30s with their hatred of Christianity, that they had a special hitman to go out and arrest and execute Christians. And that was Saul of Tarsus. And, and you know, I was just thinking about that time frame this morning as I'm working through all, when all these guys are doing what they're doing, and that makes perfect sense. That's the time frame. And then, of course, Saul is confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, and that's around 37 or 38, so that's just a year or two after, after Caiaphas, but still under a high priest who was Annas' uh, son. Caiaphas, we know... Uh, was alive a few years ago, about I think about close to 20 to 20 years or so ago, they discovered the tomb of the family, and they discovered this ornate ossuary, that's a bone box, uh, for Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, John tells us in verse 14, was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And John recorded that statement uh, back in John chapter 12, and as a prophecy that what Caiaphas is thinking of is that the Romans are going to want an accountability, but if we give them somebody, then maybe they'll they'll back off. And so maybe if we can give them Jesus, then that will uh, cause them to relax the pressure on the Jewish people. Little does he know what the real meaning of that is going to be, that Jesus will die for the people. So Annas is going to interview him, and he says, or John eighteen nineteen says that he asked Jesus about his disciples and about his doctrine. He wants to find something that he can accuse Jesus of and something that will bring about his condemnation. So he asks about his disciples. Who are they? He wants to know who they are, and Jesus is not going to give up, uh, up any information about his disciples or what is what is taking place and he in fact he protects them and then Jesus answers the second question about his doctrine and really Jesus is very sophisticated in the way that he is handling this he's basically throwing it back on them you've brought me to trial you should have the information you need to have uh the the uh evidence against me. He says, I spoke openly to the world. I didn't do anything in secret. There was no conspiracy. He said, I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. And so in verse 20, he is turning this back on them because in their According to the Jewish law, they, were, they weren't supposed to condemn somebody on the basis of what they said. They were supposed to produce two or three witnesses that would con- provide evidence that would condemn them. So this is another way in which they are violating uh, their own law. And so Jesus is throwing it back at him. You're condemning me. You provide the witnesses. You provide the evidence. And so in verse 21, he says, why do you ask me? 
ask, uh, ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Verse 22 on this slide, and when he said this, one of the officers standing by, so now we know that it's not just him and Annas. See, John has a, John's theme is what? Jesus comes into the world, he's the light of the world, to confront everybody with the, the issue of his identity, one-on-one. So initially, he presents it as if it's just Jesus and Annas. Because he's, he, he, he recognizes it's every individual's decision how they're going to respond to Jesus. So it's not until this point that we know that there's someone else there. There's an officer there who gives Jesus, just reaches over and slaps him in the face, which is also a violation of the law. The condemned person is not supposed to be beaten. So he attacks Jesus and says to him, is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus says to him, if I've spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. See, he's sticking with the law, whereas the others are violating the law. We see that happening a lot today. We are to, civilized people are a people who live by the law. And so we look at that, that is the end of that Scenario, and what happens is that Jesus is sent from there to Caiaphas. And this is where Matthew picks up, is the second trial, which is with Caiaphas. And I'm going to stop here because we have uh, run out of time due to, to having the Lord's table today. So we'll come back next time and look at the second uh, set of trials and get a little further in our study. The point is, Jesus challenges each of us because he's the light of the world. What is our response to him? If you're a believer, then your response is, are you going to grow spiritually and let Jesus continue to be the light of your life? If you're an unbeliever, the issue is, are you going to respond to the gospel and trust in Jesus as the Savior of the world to save you from your sins? with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things about our Lord and about his unjust treatment. As Peter says, it is the just who is dying for the unjust, and it is the just who is condemned by the unjust. And Father, as we study this, we are just impressed by how much our Lord went through physically prior to the cross all on our behalf. And that just gives us a glimpse, a small glimpse of what he went through, what he endured spiritually when he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge those who listen, that if there's someone who's listening who's never uh, trusted in Christ as Savior, never understood the gospel, never understood that Jesus came to show God's love for us, that he provided us with a perfect salvation that he offers us forgiveness of sin and eternal life, and it's a free gift, and that all that is necessary to respond is to believe, to simply accept that salvation as a free gift, and at that instant we're declared righteous and we're given eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with the love that our Father has for us in providing us such a perfect salvation that we, are, we have been bought with a price and therefore we are not our own. 
and that we have been saved for a purpose, and that is to serve you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.